Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Welcome back to The Current. I am your host, Nadia Last, and I am so thrilled to be sitting across from Dr. Ido Cohen on the start of this new year. Dr. Ido Cohen, Ido, is someone that I saw speak at what's called the Harvest Integration Summit, which was a day-long sort of psychedelic integration seminar. And I sat in the front row of this workshop and Ido started the conversation talking about astrology and the astrological transits shifting from Scorpio to Sagittarius season. And I remember sitting in the front row nodding vigorously. And I am so curious where this conversation takes us today, because I think at just an energetic level, you know, I'm curious about you. And I I felt really enlivened and enlightened by the conversation. By way of formal introduction for folks listening, uh, Ido is a clinical psychologist. He studied at the California Integral Institute of Integral Sciences, which is near me in California, and at the Jung Institute. So, so he studies uh, the foundational aspects of Jungian psychology. And while you also have your practice, you very much specialize in the psycho-spiritual exploration, which I'm really excited to dip our toes into today. And also you founded what's called the Integration Circle, which helps integrate peak psychedelic experiences beyond the actual medicine journey, how one brings it back into their everyday life. So welcome, Ido. Thank you for having me, Nadia. And I appreciate you for nodding. I remember you because it gave me such a good feeling of like, okay, I think this is landing. That astrology piece just came to me like two minutes before I started talking. (laughs) So thank you for being there and validating that I'm on the right track. (laughs) Maybe we can just start there. How does astrology fit into your work? I'm very much into uh, maps of consciousness, right? So astrology is one, human design, the Enneagram, uh, Jungian typology, all that stuff, um, extroverted, introverted. So astrology for me is just one more uh, map. Um, There's something really Right. Because basically astrology is built of all these archetypes that were formed through time, that each archetype has a certain set of characteristics, a certain set of behaviors, a certain set of expressions that makes them unique. And we kind of find ourselves in those archetypes. Yeah. Right. I've heard astrologers say that basically, right, that there's a reason that in astrology, we all have all the charts because we are all compromised of, out of all of those energies. But each one of us is unique in the sense that we have more energy deposits in particular type, in particular energies, in particular archetypes. Right. And that's what makes me a Capricorn. It might makes you a, what's your sign? Aries. Aries. Okay, great. What makes you an Aries, right? And I found, I found that there is, uh, I'm sure we'll get to the collective unconscious, that there is a resonance between what is happening astrologically and what's happening in the more tangible collective, conscious and unconscious, right? I don't think that the idea of Mercury retrograde would become such a pop culture thing if there wasn't something real in it. Yes, uh, meaning that there is a way in which when the Mercury starts kind of moonwalking backwards, certain things happen and enough people have felt that happen and became like, like a cultural phenomenon. Mercury retrograde. Everybody knows about Mercury. That's in Saturn's return. Every, pretty much if you know a little bit about astrology, you know about your Saturn return, right? And it became this cultural 
everybody's dreading their 29th, 50th, <laughs> right? Saturn is going to come. And, and, it, and so that's on one level. On the other level, I think it is more, um, every shamanic culture that I'm familiar with had an astrological practice. So there is something very shamanic about it because it diffuses the separation between ourself and the, the, the universe and the creation that we're part of, right? Which is a much more modern, when astronomy came about, then the separation became there's stars and there's humans, right? And astrology is like this thing that, you know, it's, it used to belong to witches and, and um, fortune tellers and... Now it's became a lot more, still has to go through some, but became more mainstream. But it also collapsed, that shamanic part of it collapses that separation between us and the universe and the everything. Beautifully said. I, I love the wisdom in that because it's really easy for pop astrology and the horoscopes one reads in a magazine to make it very surface level. And what you're saying is that to remember that you're a Capricorn and to feel Mercury retrograde, which we just got out of yesterday helps remind us of the fabric of the cosmos where we come from and to help us feel and give words to the waves of experiences that the collective is having at the same time. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite James Hillman quotes is um, who founded archetypal psychology. He says, uh, we are impacted by invisible forces more than we care to believe. Yeah. I almost want you to just say it one more time for people to really feel it. We are impacted by invisible forces more than we care to believe. Yeah. Why do people care to not believe that, to turn a blind eye to the invisible forces at play? Because it's terrifying, right? The easiest answer would be, or the most immediate association I can give is it's, it uh, disintegrates the idea of control, that I am in charge. And... Or I have the majority of uh, power about the way reality is shaped, right? And if we, and it's enough that we have a hard time dealing with the visible forces that dictate our life, right? Our f- partners, our families, our workplaces, our culture, the the government, the country, the right religion, whatever it is to then add another layer that there are invisible forces (laughs) that are at play that, you know, shape my life on a moment to moment basis, that would feel really, I think it's terrifying or it can be terrifying. Right. Because, and, and until you don't start working with it, I think it just, it can land in this place of helplessness or fear of what we don't understand. So how does one take those overwhelming waves that feel like they're, taking us over and begin to sort of surf with them? I think the beginning point for me is to be in a place of curiosity. So you don't have to start believing in gnomes and fairies and and gods and goddesses and astrology, right? Right now, because Nadia Nido said that you need to do that. (laughs) But it's to be curious, right? So I'm going to give an example. Um, in many of my courses, I give, I do a, a piece of uh, teaching around what archetypes are, what archetypes are, the Jungian idea of archetypes, the kind of psycho-shamanic idea of archetypes. And the exercise I give is I 
do this um, kind of intuitive meditation, I assign each group member an archetype that I randomly choose from a book. And there is these, they have to go through these five steps um, of engagement. So the first thing is you just look at an image of, so let's say you get, um, you don't even look at, let's say you get a bell. That's your archetype, right? Seemingly very, very harmless. So the idea is that first thing you just think about a bell and you sit down and you write any associations you have with bells. And then you would go and start looking at images of a bell and see like, okay, when I look at this image, what does that do for me? Wow, because this bell makes me feel this way, but that bell makes me feel a certain way. And then you would go out and you seek a bell. Like I would send you and be like, okay, go to a shop where they sell a lot of bells and go and touch it and ring it and see what happens. And then you will do that every day for about five to 10 days. And I've had people describe the most incredible things from having memories of childhood come up for them to one person got a, I remember her archetype was a boat and she had this like, almost like a shocked expression on her face. And I was like, what's happening? She's like, well, I live in front of a port. So I see boats all the time. And my grandpa used to have a boat and it already triggered this whole set of things for her. So she would go and sit by the pier and look at the boats and look at the, so then it evolves. It's not just the boat, right? It's a boat is a, a means of transporting things from one place to the other. So it's something that carries us between worlds. A boat is also something that rests on water. So it's the relationship between wood and water, right? So all of a sudden that thing starts to, and it starts evoking things for us. Now, if I can work with what it evokes for me, something happens, right? So it's about relationships. So the first thing is really being curious and kind of getting out of that non-judgmental place. How do I, if I want to, if I want to see if this invisible world is actually shaping me, okay, great. Right. So it can be, I walk in a, right. So I can walk in the forest and see like, how do I feel? doesn't matter. I was really, really anxious when I walked into the forest. I came out, I feel less. Which is such a simple way of accessing what is very profound and very detailed. And there are so many different, you know, as a union psychologist, there's so many different avenues you can go down, but to bring it back to the simple, the mundane. Absolutely. And it is about, so it's, for me, it's really about starting to foster enough openness, suspending judgment and curiosity to start engaging. It's all about the relationship and any relationship starts with engagement. Talk to me a bit about synchronicity because that person to <laughs> me, I'm like, there's a reason why they, they pulled the, the boat archetype. So synchronicity, the way I understand it is when certain external conditions create an event that cannot, that we can think about as coincidence, but it's not. Okay. So what does that mean? This, the famous story I've heard the first time when Jung really kind of is him, um, Freud and him were sitting in an office and they were starting to have disagreements about the spiritual part of Jung's theory. Freud was obviously very, he was trying to make the, his, psychosexual theory, legitimate science. He's like, what is this nonsense about all these spiritual phenomena? And as they were talking about that, there was a knock on uh, a door and Jung caught it. 
and Freud dismissed it. And then there was another knock and Freud, Jung saw that as synchronicity. He's like, don't you understand? Here we are talking about this and there's an unexplainable knock happening right now. Can't you see that? And Freud totally dismissed it, right? So synchronicities, as I understand them, are, are ways in which for Jung, the, the main archetype was the capital S self, right? The capital S self is the energy from which everything ex uh, that exists in everything that we are connected to and that permeates all things. And for Jung, the idea was that our ego, the ego's main function is to be in relationship with the big S self. So basically the ego is uh, uh, kind of a translator and a processing center, which is very different than mainstream understanding of ego, right? Which is like the, the whole totality of our personality, right? So the ego is basically supposed to receive these messages from the self and kind of work with them, process them, integrate them, and then we create behavior, right? We shape our so synchronicity is when the capital S self inside of us and the one outside of us are in connection, but we don't understand it yet, right? So synchronicity can be some kind of, uh, there's a lot of conversation that the Jung Institute I train about is, do you take synchronicity as without arguments or maybe you should kind of pause and reflect even when there is a synchronicity, right? Do all synchronicities lead to a good place? What is a good place? Right? But the idea is that synchronicity is this attunement that happens between our deepest inner world and the world outside of us. Beautifully said. Right. So another story would be, uh, there is a very famous Jungian story about um, one of Jung's patients talking about having a dream with a scarab. And as she's talking about the dream, there is a kind of a knock on the window. And Jung reaches for the window, opens it and grabs a scarab out of the air. And he literally just hands it to his patients, like, here's your scarab. Wow. So that is, right, from that world, we would say, like, whatever this dream is about, whatever this scarab is about, here's the profound proof that this person's dream is really on the right path. It's really attuned to the truth of her moment and what's happening and where the universe wants her to go, or where the capital S self wants her to go. But that's a very sexy, like, you know, otherworldly kind of synchronicity, right? Synchronicities that I think are more approachable is you think about someone and they call you. You were talking about something in lunch and then you go somewhere or you see an archer and like, oh my God, I was just talking about that, right? But the idea would be like, if this message is coming back and it's leaving so much a profound impact on me, can I go, so it brings us back to the invisibles. Can I start like really relating to this? Like, why is this thing keep coming back to me? For me, it always happens in dreams. 15 minutes, it feels like the 10 or 15 minutes before I wake up when I'm in the more liminal dreaming space. And there will be a theme, a feeling, a person, a word that then comes up a lot in the day to come, which is very interesting to me. And there's a part of my mind that's like, this is so, it's almost like creepy in a way. But then there's this part of me that's just relaxing into Perhaps time is not as linear as we perceive it to be. And perhaps we are picking up all the time on energetic threads and pullings. And it feels like a source of comfort in a way as well, that my life is being pulled along a certain continuum as long as I'm paying attention to it. And those signs are always there to support me. 
and help me feel less alone in my life's path. And what do you do with them? If I'm having a great day, I will spend some time before I look at my phone, which is not every day. And before I go and thrust myself into work and other um, obligations and I'll sit down with my journal and I'll just spend some time. And it, it reminded me actually of what you were saying before with the bell. If it's a word, what does that word mean to me? Well, how has that come up before? If it's an ex-boyfriend, can I spend some time writing a letter to that person that I'm no longer in contact with to see what else is there to be processed? If I don't have the time, I'll just pay attention to the rest of my day and see, oh, interesting. I had that dream about my grandma. And all of a sudden, my mom's calling me and she's like, hey, there's something going on with your grandmother. So it, it starts to be this call and response of just observing the ways in which I receive something and then it plays out in my physical reality. I think that's a beautiful, it's exactly that, right? It's a call. It's interesting because usually we're being called to, right? The synchronicity calls us into some kind of awareness or attention about something that we need to pay more attention to. Why did you choose Jungian psychology of all the different ones? And, and I think <laughs> I'm curious as a spiritually inclined therapist as well, why Jungian psychology speaks to you. I know that Jung had a lot of reverence for what I believe he called the numinous. I always had a fascination about why the invisibles, like why people do what they do. And it wasn't enough for me to just, I don't know why. I was always interested in the more than visible motivation of things, more than, um, let alone being a very imaginative kid. Um, so, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and anything that's like really fuels your fantasy world. It was always intriguing to me. But I was also really fascinated about the, what I, f I felt like there is an, um, an engine behind the visible representation of why people, the way they are. That and other things led me to travel in India after the army, um, after I got released. And obviously for me, it was a very big, for me, it was a very big psycho-spiritual experience to be in India. I was very interested in meditation by then and synchronicities happened there in an overwhelming you, you talk to someone about something and th three hours later it's happening or you all these, you get to the right place at the wrong time, but it's actually the right place at the right time and you just don't understand it yet. So all these things kept happening. And when I came back and I had a very profound experience there, I fell in love. I was in a relationship that was very psycho-spiritually oriented. I traveled with all my friends. I saw people go through, all of us went through, it's just a profound transformation and when we all came back home, I also saw the slow regression collapse of all that beautiful transformation. And I, I couldn't really understand it. It just didn't make sense to me of how can you go for something so profound and have all that just disappear within three to six months because you're back home. But I didn't have language. I didn't have understanding, but I was really fascinated by that. And when I did my undergrad in psychology, um, one of the classes was had a Jungian portion and something in his ideas just clicked for me because I felt like he was really talking psycho-spiritually. He wasn't a Freudian, Winnicottian, you know, psychoanalytic or the relational or the CBT, all, all these foundations that they were teaching us. It felt like he was talking from an a level of consciousness that already integrated the spiritual dimensions that I've experienced. 
And then I took a course on the child development through Harry Potter, which was, it was phenomenal, which was uh, taught by a child psychoanalyst and a Jungian analyst together. And I just saw the merger of those worlds. So it was obvious to me that when I'm going to go pursue higher, you know, my next degrees, that that would be uh, something I would want to dive into. And the more I studied him, um, the more his, it feels to me like him, like even like people like Ramdas, all the, they found a way to merge the psycho-spiritual in a, if you know how to read them, it's very straightforward. Jungian, like you said that before we started, Jungian language can Jungian theory has become really intellectualized, which is why a lot of the like Jungian institutes right now are going more into a relational somatic orientation to kind of bring it back to the body, to like descend from the realms of the mind. So for me, it was just a perfect, it was, you know, the perfect marriage. And when I did my study on integration of ayahuasca ceremonies, it was obvious to me that he has the the map and the language for me to um, use to really explain what felt like ineffable realms of experience for people and how do we make them into effable realms that we can communicate with each other, that we can embody and that we can integrate and integration as long, um, sustainable long-term change. So not just peaks and valleys, but something that I can work with ongoingly to create changes on a day-to-day basis. I love it. And I have many more questions. I think we could go into so many of the different realms you just spoke about, including the Harry Potter (laughs) and child development and Jungian analysis. I love Harry Potter. I reread the whole series every year. Mm -hmm. I think it's very much channeled. Um, But would you say that that's the thread that connects everything that you do, trying to bring from this ineffable place, the mystery of life, those profound peak experiences and grounding it into the material. Absolutely. I remember when I was in undergrad, I, I read, uh, they gave us to read Thomas Sass and I can't remember the other person's name right now, but also famous. They're both anti-psychiatry psychiatrists. And I remember being really drawn to them and not understanding why. And I later realized that my, because they were refusing the idea that human experience can be shrunken into very dry, five-dimensional diagnoses structures. So if you have these five things out of eight, then this is who you are. We can't treat a human being if we don't take all the dimensions into consideration. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be really, really spiritual for us to connect. Not at all. Right? But I, as the person, want to want to be in a place where I can, uh, when I acknowledge that that exists in you, that I will be even curious about you in that regards. Just as much as I am curious about your mental well-being, right? Or your emotional well-being, I will be curious of your somatic well-being and your spiritual well-being, which for me is also your creative side, right? Your um, And it's funny, it's interesting to me how people, you know, still in my work, people keep that in hiding just as much as they keep their sexuality in hiding which I find really interesting that there is a similar amount of shame around your spirituality, just as much as your sexuality. And usually that also, unless you're very inclined to talk about it, if you're not, it's only through time and safety and an invitation from the other person, you would feel like, Oh wait, you're actually curious about that. 
And I've seen that. I've seen many, many people that I've worked with and people that I've talked to that when I get really curious about their spirituality or their dreams or they're like, oh, wait, someone is actually curious about that part of me. And nobody's actually being curious about that. I'm curious if you could just describe or define quickly spirituality from this sort of like larger lens and why you think it's taboo, why you think it's harder that people need as you just just described, a lot of safety and trust with someone to talk about it in the same way that their sexuality is more closeted? I think for me, spirituality is anything that you feel adds a level of meaning, knowledge, impact into your life that's not in adds that to your life, right? It's a very tricky thing to define spirituality. I have not even going to that, but right. For you, it can be, um, spiritual to, uh, crochet. Cause when you sit in crochet, you go into an altered state, you're totally meditating. Right. For me, I can be like, what are you talking about? That's not spirituality is when you're on the yoga mat or doing this, that, or the other. Right. But it's, it's the impact of the act. I say this a lot. It's not what you do. It's how do you do what you do and what's the impact of what you do, right? You and I can do the same spiritual act, but have totally different experiences. Usually that's what happens. Um, so that's kind of my loose on in this moment definition. Um, why I think people have a hard time. Oh, I think on f- one level is a lot of us have a religious trauma. Right. So either you were raised within a religion that caused you pain or the way it was practiced by people caused you pain. Right. It was used to shame you, blame you, guilt you, um, oppress, repress parts of yourself. So we carry that wound. Or we come from a much more secular uh, stream of life where that's not even acknowledged or it's kind of talked down upon or it's relegated, like you said, to, you know, back of the paper astrology where it's, this is your fortune for this week. And it's very dry and it's manufactured in a way that's very, makes it very, um, makes it into a product. So we treat it as a product. So I think in a generalized, it's either two. That's what I've seen. It's either people who come from, it's like, oh, spirituality is just woo-woo. It's not a thing. It's not real. You know, my family never talked about it. Or there is some religious trauma. There is another part, actually, that that's, but that's only through conversation. It usually happens where there is repressed spirituality. I know a lot of people who, when the spiritual part comes up, they're like, well, you know, my mom actually used to do these things, but even she was scared of it or she was told that it's not okay. Or so that travels in generations, right? So I'm going to inherit that thing because my mom was scared. So I'm going to be scared. So just to bucket these for folks listening, because people will be coming from this perspective. There's the religious trauma and baggage, pain, from a lot of different angles, but oftentimes because there's a lot of oppression and patriarchy and addiction to power and greed, there's the silliness of it or people dismissing it as, you know, horoscope astrology. And then there is the the fear, which I remember my mom feeling when I brought this tarot deck into our home 
a couple Christmases ago. And she was very scared of like, why did you bring this, this witchcraft into our home? And I'm like, mom, this is the best journaling tool that I have for introspection, the archetypes that are included in this deck. There's nothing scary. There's nothing witchy. And witchy to me is, is such a lovely word. I, I probably identify as a witch, but it, um, for her, it was very scary. So yeah, I think it's really useful to understand those categories or those lanes that people come to the word spirituality from. Absolutely. And, and you know, you thank you for being your, your, that example with your mom, because I think we can take this one level deeper, which is, I think there is a level of fear that's about spirituality is that people are actually scared to see themselves, right? Jung talked a lot and I love to bring that about how the industrial age created a split between uh, humans and their soul. And it actually, right? So, and we already know this, right? So capitalism, the industrial, the shadow of capitalism, the shadow of the industrial age is it's very computerized. It's very mechanized. It's very optimization oriented and it's very fast paced. There is very, it's about, right? Achieving things and processes of soul do not comply with any of those words. So it created the separation of soul. So anything that, and it's not just soul, it's the psyche too, right? So anything that might induce my psyche or all the parts of my shadow that I don't want to see is treated as an enemy. But instead of saying, oh my God, I don't want to look at your terror deck, Nadia, like that's, I don't know, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Those images, it's making me feel sad, right? It's like, oh, this is just witchcraft, right? So we demonize the other. So, but which is what we use, right? We talk a lot about that. That's a projection. I'm just projecting something on it instead of, because it's already triggering something. For, like, why would you be scared of a bunch of cards with paintings on them? Unless you already had some kind of internal process in that moment or that you've been carrying with you that gets triggered just by the sight of them. Which I think is the experience many people have when they feel trepidation about psychedelics as well. Mm -hmm. Which back to what you were saying before, I feel like is often our perceived control in this 3D dimension and reality that we can perceive. It's going into something that you don't have control. You don't have control over what card you'll choose. You don't have control over what your psychedelic experience will be and what you will see and what it will illuminate. So I'm, I'm curious how psychedelics fits into your personal spiritual practice and, and also uh, the integration work that you do through the integration circle and beyond? On a personal level, you know, I think for the first 32 years of my life, I could have counted my psychedelic experiences on one hand. Uh, I came to it with a lot of awe, um, also a lot of fear. It was mostly done in recreational surroundings, but it never was a recreational experience. Like it always ended up with me sitting in a room, talking with someone or processing like a lot of my own stuff. But again, not having the vocabulary back then to be like, oh, this is, you know, a lot of my trauma or my shadow or this, that or the other. But also having very ecstatic moments and very broad transpersonal moments with a lot of beautiful insight of seeing interconnectivity. And then it evolved to something a lot more conscious, a lot more focused work on myself, 
my own trauma, my own expression of my psyche, my expression of the numinous, as you invited before, um, interaction with um, learning about healing from a different modality. I had a teacher um, who I did it with and her bringing her own version of Chinese medicine with Chinese astrology, with uh, Shipibo Ayahuasca shamanism, right? So learning through her about these, through the, in these unseen spaces, learning, seeing like what she's doing and then tying it to my psychology and what I want to do with people. And obviously learning from participants, just hearing participants' stories and other people's stories. And now it's still, for me, it's very, when I do it, which is not common, it's very, um, I go with it with, it's, it's a ritual, it's a ceremony. It can be to explore something in myself, to get clarity, to go deeper into an already existing um, exploration of, let's say, something I want to improve in my intimacy with uh, my partner or with people or fears that I'm still holding on to. But, or, but also seeing like, okay, well, how can I not just understand the fear, but how can I learn to be, what would it look like to be without the fear? What can I do to live with fear and still and, and express myself more, whatever it is that I'm trying to get to. And so it's really kind of, uh, it's, it's like going to a council. You know, I don't think about it as I'm taking something that's going to make me better. I know that I'm entering into a, I'm transporting myself into a different state of consciousness and I'm going to have to go and do some work. I'm not just going to lay there and receive healing. And it's, it's never been that way for me personally. It's always been very, very conscious engagement, like really feeling stuff that's uncomfortable in my body and then having to work with my body and letting the feelings go and trying to be in a space of curiosity and wonder why am I feeling this way or whatever it is that I'm learning, it's constantly asking me to be in relationship with it. So right now I take it with a lot more, there is a lot more awe, a lot more mindfulness around it. I love that you describe it as a council. Mm-hmm. And I can feel some people squirming as they hear that word. Like <laughs> I'm going to go in front of a judge, a, a team of, of beings uh, that are going to, you know, but, but I also feel the excitement from some folks listening of there's, there is something that I can't see by myself and I want some external support to go deeper internally. It's, it's not that different than uh, going to see your therapist or your uh, doctor or whoever, right? It's, I think it's interesting that you name that some people might have, because the counsel is not just for, with someone external of you, it's also with yourself, right? One of the beauty of psychedelics is it can help us disidentify with this one version of ourselves that we are, where most of our, where our consciousness spends most of our time in. And all of a sudden see, oh my God, I've been, my inner child has been controlling my life for the last week because she wants, she feels neglected or she feels hurt. That's a version of a counsel, right? So all of a sudden it's me interacting with my inner child. Or all of a sudden I'm seeing an image of this big flaming Buddha and it's, uh, I can share this. I always share this story. Um, I had that experience. I had this experience of sitting in a psychedelic 
ceremony in the ayahuasca ceremony and all of a sudden seeing uh for me it's very visual so i saw this big black buddha with you know gold radiating and flames and seemed like a very terrifying and i had this contracted response to it and this voice told me like oh did you did you notice what you just did there and i was like oh yeah i i, I contracted it's like why i'm just an image i haven't done anything to you and it opened up this whole dialogue for me with oh i am scared because i projected this very destructive feminine energy on this image and it opened up for me being in a process with that entity with that archetype about what is my fears around the power of the feminine why do i project it destructive how much that has to do with my mom how much does that has to do with me living in a country where there's a lot of war that's powerful it's very right? and to the point of like taking that and working with it that it's not just revealed in that moment and now you receive the healing and you move on are you still working with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I talk about this. There is a difference between shadow encounter and shadow work. That was shadow encounter. I encountered this thing. So even though I was asking questions and starting to have some kind of insight into it, it was just the beginning. The work is later. The work is, like you said, is to continuously go deeper into the question, to learn the narrative of why I have those projections. Why am I scared of that feminine power? How do I build a healthier relationship with it? So it's moving from understanding into trying to start building something different. How do I interact? How do I next time feel the fear, but not get overwhelmed by it or overtaken and actually stay in connection? All right. So that's just the beginning of that encounter. And absolutely, absolutely. These things that's that's the beauty and it doesn't have to be with psychedelics i you know i keep telling this to people you can you can have the same amount of profundity of insight from working with a dream from you and me going and getting pizza and you say something to me that really kind of hit me either in a negative way quote unquote or left an impression on me and if i can be like why did when nadia say that thing to me my whole body started vibrating like, what is that? Why? And really taking my time and building a relationship with that moment that we had will yield something. And if I can keep pulling on those threads, some, something will keep opening up for me. So it doesn't have to be, we need psychedelics in some way because we live in such a desensitized version of ourselves. So we need something to kind of like come in and penetrate us. You know, so it can be a psychedelic or it can be a, I can share from my life, um, my house burned down last year. So it can be a fire, right? Like this really big external thing. So here's the unconscious uh, coming into the, con right into our conscious. It can be an illness. It can be a breakup. It can be anything that really kind of triggers this surge of arrows of aliveness into our life. And is inviting us to, to pause for a moment, to slow down and be like, what is happening to me? Your house burning down, I have this visceral feeling all over my body. Like it's just, it's mm. such a major life event. And I'm sure it will take time to really process and integrate. That's a, a psychedelic experience of its own. But mm -hmm. 
how did you begin to work with that or get curious about this experience beyond the the trauma of of I'm assuming losing most of your physical possessions? Ninety five percent of my possessions. Wow. I literally was left with the clothes I was wearing, and I had stuff in my storage that was mostly like gardening tools, <laughs> which is not very useful. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything, my uh, really anything that's useful. I, a few of, uh, it's, it was interesting. A few of the things that were left were actually Jungian and astrology books wow. that somehow managed to survive. <laughs> and, but nothing that was really, you know, that's um, not the things that you need for tangible living, like toothbrush, toothpaste. It, it's it's going to be hard for me to answer that question fully, but I, how do you start working with it? I, first of all, I had to like, you know, make sure that I'm okay. You know, like, okay, I know where I'm going to go to sleep. I know where I'm. And honestly, the first thing that I noticed was just uh, the change in my uh, mood. There was something in me that actually felt very calm. And I was like, that's weird. Am I just dissociating? Am I disconnecting? Like this is, and it was, it was like, no, there were, I felt if I was honest, it made me be very honest with myself. And I was like, if I felt if I'm honest with myself, I was living a life that was very much ruled by what I wanted to create. So I was forcing things into creation and not being really in an honest relationship with what life was actually showing me that the person I was with at that time was not the right person for me. That I was living in a place where I was just trying to get somewhere as opposed to really being with no, here's a new opportunity that you didn't think you should have, but here it is here. Or maybe you should go explore this thing before you settle down. Or um, So there was a lot of fear in my system. So it just showed me that. So first, it, the first thing I was just listening. It was just very, it was really just kind of seeing in a natural way how I was working from fear. And then the first, the, the other thing is I went to get clothes because I needed to buy clothes. And I remember going and I was like, had this moment of, oh, I get to, I need to buy a whole new set of clothes, but I get to choose clothes from this version of myself, which is funny to think about, right? Because if you, when you go and you get dressed, most of your clothes are how old? Two to five years. Two to five years. Okay. So I don't know if the... Nadia that bought those clothes five years ago, right? If I give her the same money and be like, hey, this version of Nadia now, do you want to wear the same clothes? If you had money, would you buy different clothes? Totally. Okay, right? So I had this opportunity. The first thing was like, oh, I get to choose. I get to work from this version of myself. So for me, it was really a psychedelic experience in the sense that at first I was just listening. I was listening to my experience the, last, the the first few weeks after. And then I was starting to follow that. So I didn't buy anything that didn't resonate with the version of myself that I am now. I decided not to settle down anywhere because I didn't really know where I wanted to be. I just had an idea of a life that I should have. And that meant I should live in this specific place in Northern California. But actually, in reality, I was like, no, I don't know if that's where I need to be. I don't know if that's where it feels good to be. So I went and explored places. 
in the tarot, there's this card, the tower, where the tower. everything <laughs> burns down. And <laughs> it's it's whenever you pull the tar- the tower card in your tarot deck, there's this moment of fear of like, <laughs> oh, shit, everything's about to, you know, like it's scrambled mm-hmm. up and turned upside down and it's intense energy. Fire. I mean, what a dramatic way for the universe to capture your attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, as a Jungian nerd, obviously, it, when I had a little bit more space, I did the homework I give the people who come to my courses, what I was just like, I started working with the archetype of fire and I was like, what is fire? This fire burned everything, but it's also helping me build something. It took away a lot of my illusions. So in, in a way, this fire was also kind of graceful with me. Yes. Did it send me into, and it's not to spiritualize it. There was a big financial loss. There was, it was very disruptive. It was very dramatic. It was very dramatic. I'm um, talking like six uh, fire depart- fire trucks and four police cars and a hundred people on the streets shooting with their video. And I arrived to the scene late and it was very dramatic. It was very, um, it has a very strong underworldly feeling to it. It wasn't, uh, oh my God, look at this beautiful gift the universe is giving me by taking away all my money and all these uh, objects. It wasn't that. But I had enough space and then I think enough psychological integration inside of me or psycho-spiritual integration inside of me to be able to start being in a place of curiosity, to be, to consciously surrender into what's already happening. Like I'm in this process. If I want to or not, I'm here. So I might as well try to participate. Talk about the most intense way that you can start to practice what you preach and not begin because I know you've been in a long psycho-spiritual exploration yourself, but this really puts things into perspective and puts these practices to the test. It's one thing to talk about it up here, but when your house is burning down and there are a hundred people filming it to go onto the internet, that's a whole different experience to actually be in inquiry. Oh, a whole other experience, a whole other experience. And, you know, that's why the more I do this work with myself and with others, the, the, um, idea of embodiment feels more and more important. And I use that word in a, for me, embodiment is when you're trying to constantly intersect your emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual bodies. So it's not just about being in your body, but it's about trying to bring those experiences back into the thing that you call yourself. So it's like, I'm feeling something. I acknowledge that. I sense something. I acknowledge that. Wait, I went through a fire and I'm feeling this and this and that. I bring them all together. It was a shocking, dramatic, painful experience. That was definitely another masterclass in also grieving. And through community support, through my own work with myself that I've done, through working with other people as I go, I was, the story was able to take on a full range. And I think that's what feels important, right? It's not to uh, spiritually bypass or to um, make it too mundane. It's about how do we allow things to have their full range? When I was telling the story to people when after the fire, you know, the most interesting response I got from everybody was that the end of the conversation, they all would, 99% of people told me, you know, I kind of wish that that will happen to me now listening to you. 
Wow. And I would have this and I would be like, really? Why? And they said, there is something that feels incredibly liberating. That it's like, it almost touched on some, un, uh, on this wish that people had, but they would never say. Because if you go say around, yeah, I know, I wish my house burned down. And all my, people would be like, okay, you're crazy. But I was, I really got curious. And I was like, why? Why is this a wish for people? And because there is something really attractive about this idea of rebirth. Right. I think we all have a collective archetype where if we would give in the chance without too much pain, wouldn't it be nice to restart life now? And the timing of this, what you're saying is so beautifully timed with the start of the year. Why people get so excited about the idea that I get to shed my skin and begin anew. The shedding of a snake skin feels much more casual and less dramatic than a phoenix rising from the ashes, literally burning itself to then rise again in a much more brilliant and colorful form. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a good timing. That's okay. That's a synchronicity, right? Um, <laughs> it is a good timing. And, and, you know, for those who are listening, there is a beautiful invitation for all of us, which is what am I trying to rebirth? Because I find that a rebirth has this, it, it has a, I'm curious what you're thinking, what you'll think about this, Nadia. I find that rebirth has two sides. On the one hand, it comes from unbearable suffering. There is a suffering that I cannot figure out that I just don't want to feel anymore. If I can only rebirth myself, I won't have to feel it. And then there is on the other side, there is a recognition that we are rejuvenating and, um, rejuvenate your organisms, that there is the potential for us to be reborn or in a way recreated, reinvented is really tangible because our psyche is built towards that. So there is almost like a, in that wish, there is an acknowledge to get in touch with something that is inherently in our system, but also a desire to move away from something that we can't tolerate anymore. Yes. And that's where this mantra in and through feels so pertinent here. What we want is the end to suffering and we want to really push an easy button that gets us there. But the way to the other side of suffering is to change our relationship to it, to get creative, to spend some time with it, to get curious with it. The rebirth that people likely feel so strongly from you as they speak, like that liberation that, ah, that you have all clothes that resemble now this Edo of this era. It was forged through fire quite literally but pain and challenge and that that unending difficulty of your life being flipped upside down in an instant yeah it was and and i think one of my theories is that it was attractive to people because it didn't you don't have to go through conscious grief when your house is being burned down right it's not the marie kondo i feel it in my hand i let it go and cuz people don't want to do that it's like, oh, that sounds like, why would I? Because then you start thinking, you start negotiating with loss. Like, well, you know, I, I might wear that thing if there is a black tie party in blah, blah. It's like, okay, when was the last time you went to a black tie party? Right. But we don't want to let, we don't want to deal with that process of conscious grieving. Right. So I think that's, there is something 
that's part of the, the, the attraction of something happening to us, right? We can talk about that as most of us have this idea that uh, this deep, deep wish that uh, some force visible or not will come and take care of us. Uh, I'll win the lottery and then all my problems will be solved. Or I'll find the person or whatever. Um, something outside will come. But it's uh, he, this is a funny thing because this is a conversation I'm having with um, my partner, which is that in the moment that something comes, you still have to work. It is funny to think that you still have to work to, to embody a blessing or to embody something that I don't use this word at all, but manifesting. So you called for that one, you got your partner, poof, they showed up, but now they have demands. They want things from you. <laughs> There's arguments, there is fights, there is, they are sad. They have, you're still going to have to show up. I feel like you can apply that to so many things um, in life, just that, you think you have, when you get the thing, that's the thing. And we're working so hard for the thing and then it arrives and it's a thing to manage that thing. It's a thing to relate to that thing. Yeah. Which is why New Year's resolutions are so much fun to make, but so hard to keep. Totally. As I'm looking at my vision board that I created <laughs> last week and it's so fun to look at. And yet I feel like I need a separate vision board, which is the, the grind of the experience. Can I really love the experience of being in relationship, daily relationship to getting out of bed, to doing the mundane thinkless things that really achieve those things. Mm. And you know, the, the top of the mountain is a tiny portion of the hike. The hike is the hike. Once you're on the path, you're at the goal. Yes. Question is, do you know you're on the path? Wow. Powerful. Right. Cause we're so goal focused. You know, I, I want to shift a bit into shadow work because it's so part of mainstream cultural pop union. I feel like that's pop union psychology is like, I'm doing shadow work. Yeah. I'd like to know, you separate the concept of the golden shadow and the darker shadow. Sure, we can call it negative shadow, sure. The negative shadow. Mm -hmm. I'd like for, for you to just kind of like for folks wading their feet into shadow work, what does it really mean? And you can tell a story or share at a high level, whatever feels right here. See if I can do both. Um, so let's start with, and this is what I shared when we met at Harvest. So shadow is anything that's outside of the light of consciousness. So if you notice that, right, if we think about it in that way, it's not good or bad. It's just unconscious to us. Now there is stuff that we title as negative, right? So it's all the our trauma, the impact of trauma, right? The pain, the suffering, the shame, the, the horror, whatever it is that's causing us inside that we don't want to, that is too much to bear, that is too painful, parts of us that we don't like, right? So maybe it's the fact that I can be really reactive or really negative or whatever shameful part of myself. Aspect of reality, right? Aspects of my parents, my partner, my community, things that I don't want to acknowledge because of the impact, we oppress, repress them into our, what we call the shadow. This is our personal shadow. That is the more widely used definition of shadow. Now, there is this idea 
that's called the golden shadow. That's not really, it's kind of more talked about in the last couple of years, actually. But when I started researching it, I barely heard anything about it. There was one, there's still one book written about it. That's all. And it came from the idea that for Jung, the really the negative shadow was just something you work with on the way to individuation, right? So individuation is the ongoing process of embodying your ever-growing authentic self. So when you go through a trauma, right? Let's say that I was a creative child that had... Every time I would show my mom a painting I would make as a kid, I would get laughed at or ridiculed or shamed for, whatever that is. I will disconnect from my creativity because me being creative equals a painful experience. So that becomes shadow too. Now it happens to us a lot, right? So it happens to both men and women around sexuality. If you don't look a certain way, if you don't act a certain way, there's something wrong with you. We start pushing it aside. If you're too sexual, there's something wrong with you, right? You're either this, that, you're relegated as a something negative. So what do you do? You push away your sexuality. Or you, you uh, over-identify with it, which is another shadow expression, right? So either oppress or become identified. Either way, it's not a fully conscious way of being who you are. So what happens is that we start separating from those parts of ourselves, which are the beautiful qualities that we want to express, we want to be in the world. That is one, the first layer of golden shadow, right? So the idea is that if I then go to therapy, if I go to Nadia or, and I start linking the fact that I used to be a very creative child and I stopped because my mom said that I would never amount to anything and, and I start reclaiming my creativity. Right? So that's a beautiful part of myself that now I can get to start expressing. The other level of golden shadow that we kind of talked about at Harvest is integrating the unimaginable. So it can be anything from, I thought I was heterosexual and then an experience happens and ho and behold, I'm not. And that totally threatens my identity, who I thought I would be or who I thought I am. But I actually do like men. Or I do, I'm a woman and I do like women. That's a golden shadow. It can be anything from that to changing your jobs to, that's a very common one, right? I changed my job. Anything, anything that you can, that you never thought you would be. You never thought that you would leave your partner and go write a book in some, I don't know, cabin in Wyoming. But there is this thing inside of you that's persistently asking you to do it. Jung and, so that's the self for Jung. Hillman talked about it as this idea of the daemon, which is this energy, this like it's a, our, it's the Virgil in Dante's Inferno. It's this thing that accompanies us. And it's like, hey, wait, your path is over here. Your path is over here. Right? And in his book, The Soul's, um, Soul's Code, Hillman brings examples of all these really famous people who didn't want to become who they became, right? He talks about this um, very uh, famous Spanish matador who, when interviewing his family, they were like, he was the, the most fearful child. He would hide behind his mother's skirt, which is interesting to think about a matador, right? 
He would hide behind his mother's skirt all his childhood. But something kept pulling him and he became a matador. Right? So I can give an example for myself is I can talk about the impact of the fire and becoming and seeing like, oh, wow, look what happens when you don't live in fear. What happens? I started taking more risks. I started taking more new experiences that I didn't think I would do. And seeing what happens when I try to, when I embody this new energy, this new identity, this new, it's not even an identity yet. It's just an exploration of an identity. So golden shadow is very much related to parts or pieces or inner callings, inner yearnings that reveal themselves to us over time. If we're willing to go under the layers of how we're currently identified. Absolutely. And relate to the world and, and tune inward. So in IFS words, we would say that we are reclaiming exiles. Hmm. That's the first level of it. But then there is not a, re, then it's, it's almost like a, um, <laughs> encountering alien parts. It's not, but it's parts that you imagined would, you know, you, you knew, you heard stories about them. It happens to other people, but then it starts happening to you, right? So you're the billionaire that becomes a kindergarten teacher. And everybody else thinks you're crazy, right? That's a, uh, again, and these are really blatant examples of that kind of golden shadow, but it's really, it's about becoming someone that you didn't think you would be. And can you allow yourself to at least entertain the process? What gets in the way of people exploring golden shadow? Since you were in the, in the workshop and I did give you guys to do that, <laughs> You tell me what, what, and I'll answer, I'll answer your question, but I'm curious, what come, what do you, what comes for you? What's, when you think about embodying that? What comes up for me is that social media, news, et cetera. I think of what we accomplish as humans as a mycelial network to use a mushroom analogy. And then seemingly overnight, a mushroom pops up out of the ground and it's celebrated and shared with others. Look at this mushroom. It's so incredible. And everyone's just comparing each other's mushrooms, totally ignoring the mycelial network underground, the years and years, the decades sometimes that it takes to marinate for something to pop up, a success, a triumph, a victory. And I think oftentimes it's very difficult for people who are constantly comparing to other mushrooms to go back underground, to go back to the beginnings to start over, to be in humility, to be a learner. And I think that it, it because there's so little airtime given to the beginning stages, the starting over, the I have no idea what's going on, that people think that that is wrong to, to winter, so to speak, if we want to speak in seasonal analogies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's totally, absolutely the beginning of it. It's the idea of reinvesting yourself so fully in something, knowing that's going to take you maybe five, 10 years when you want, um, we want happiness now. I think that's the beginning. I think f for me, the, the heart of it is uh, our avoidant relationship with loss. When you go to therapy, when you start any process of transformation, you're losing. It becomes easy when you're losing the things you want to lose. Like, I want to lose weight. I want to lose bad eating habits. Although that's not easy. It's hard to change bad eating habits. But, right? But there's more motivation around that. When you're thinking like, oh, I want to become a better person. 
And then you're realizing that becoming a better person means that you have to, let's use a very classic example, you have to have more boundaries because you realize that you're really codependent. And all of a sudden you're having boundaries and people are starting, you're starting to lose people. That's hard. And usually that's when people start doubting themselves. Oh, what do you mean? I, oh, for me to be the version of myself I want to, I can't watch two hours of Netflix every evening. So I take that away and all of a sudden I'm sitting with a vibrating body, a confused mind that doesn't know what to do now with these two hours. And I'm starting to get panicky and anxious. Now that doesn't feel good. I have to learn to be with that. So I think it's really, it's like what you're saying. It's this process of accepting winter. I love that you brought that image of, right? Winter, it's funny that we think about winter as such a dead time. Because if you, if you Google how much energy a seed needs to survive and to start grow, it's, it can literally light up like bulbs. It's like so much energy. It's very powerful. Right. So it's actually winter is that hibernation, that beginning over that reseeding is such a vibrant time. Right. And how do we stay connected to, I think it's two things. It's how do we stay connected to that, but also breaking it down to what is the next first step? What is the next first step? Exactly. Right. So I want to change my eating habits. Okay. What's the next first step? Instead of being like, I'm going to throw everything out of the, the fridge and I'm going to eat only. And then you find yourself, you threw yourself. Okay, great. You want to throw yourself in the fire? Great. If you can take it. For most of us, it can be a little more challenging. So you start with the next first step. And then the next first step after that. Which is why your house burning down and having a new wardrobe <laughs> becomes a little bit glamorized for folks. It's like, wow, you had no choice. You were thrust into it. Exactly. Yeah. You didn't have to go through that conscious beginning. It's like. You're in it. I mean, I'm assuming you and I see that in when working with people who come back from psychedelic experiences and they have these really big, insightful aha moments. And they're like, oh my God, I realized that I should uh, leave my partner and start volunteering and I don't know, do this, that, or the other. It's like, okay, great. Can you, if, if it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow. Can we slow down? Can we sit with that? Can we imagine what's the next conscious step you can take? Do you need to break up with them or maybe you need to go have a conversation? I have so many thoughts on that. When Claire and Nick and I leave these retreats, we'll tell people, wait 30 days if you can. I love riding the momentum of a psychedelic experience to be able to do the thing. I had a psychedelic experience and cut off all my hair and I don't regret it at all. My hairdresser was like, oh no, um, but it, it worked out perfectly. But I, I almost think that experience of being back in your life, like you're wearing an itchy sweater that no longer fits, the stickiness of that is part of the cementing process that propels you forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's an art, right? To live in liminal space in that space of when you're departing one thing, but you're not becoming something, right? You're in kind of in, tran in, in transport because there is an itch. Like you said, there is an itch to, to, to take off the sweater or to like, ugh. Um, and can I be with that itch and realize why is it itching? Why is it so painful? Does, do I need to take off the sweater and throw it away or do I need to go and wash it? And maybe it can be reused later, but in a different way. And yeah, there, there is, there is a, I always 
my best suggestion to anyone in liminal spaces, um, the best thing you can do is just create the most, uh, the environment that's going to support your process. Don't try and rush the process, invest in the environment. So if you're going through an intense emotional ex- like period in your time, and that might mean that you need to feel grief for three months, great. How many baths do you need to take? How many walks? Who are the people that you can hang out with that can actually allow you to be in your process, to support your process? What kind of music do you need to listen to? So how do we create the container for the process? Because the process is going to happen, right? The nature work, the psyche works like nature. It's organic. It keeps evolving. It's going to keep moving. So what are the conditions? Yes. I, I was just going to add that in this winter, how can you allow your body, your psyche to create that seed as you were talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. You know, how can you... And I love that you brought that winter as a metaphor. Like, how do you bring winter? How do you use winter as an opportunity to nourish seeds, to plant seeds, to nourish them, to really invest in that intimacy with yourself? doesn't matter if you're an extrovert, an introvert, or you're a summer person or a winter person. doesn't matter, right? It's what's here. How do I use that time? So maybe we can wind down our conversation with that question for you. How are you using this winter season? However you want to answer that, whether it's professionally, personally. Every December, I take three to five days and I do a end of year retreat. And I really, I try and go into nature as much as possible. I usually go somewhere and try to get really honest about what is this year? What happened this year? Um, what shadow do I have to, like, am I carrying with me? The word that keeps is really just this sense of honesty, like not to sugarcoat anything and then use that to write as what we call prima materia, like the primal material of, okay, how am I, what seeds am I forming from this shadow for the next year that I can start? But I write them down, but I also write down very practical things. Like I wanted, like, let's say I'm realizing that I've, work too much and I've neglected my self-development in the sense of I didn't spend time with community in a structured way. So I'm like, okay, this year I'm going to take at least two long, like three to six months courses with other people. That's a commitment, but it's fueled from all that reflection, right? So how am I, what am I doing on that? What seeds am I planting in my intimate life with my friends, with my family, professional life. I really make these kind of golden shadow commitments in a way. And I'm like, okay, this is my agreement. This is what feels the most honest. And then I start doing what I said. I'm like, okay, what's the next first step? That book is not going to write itself in a day. Okay. What's the next first step? Totally. Like I call my writing partner and I'm like, Hey, how about we write two hours a week and not one hour a week? Let's do a writer's retreat. What do you think? It's not, right, there is the, uh, you can, I'm with you, we can ride that Aries, Jean of Arc, inspire, inspiration, be like, you know, fuck it, let's just torch all of it. I'm ready. I've been holding back, let's just go. And that's great. There is no right way to do this, right? It's really more about being honest with yourself and following. And then we see what happens. What is the next first step? How can you winter? being radically honest with yourself 
to plant the seeds for this next year. Mm -hmm. What is your birthday out of curiosity? Because we're in Capricorn season. <laughs> December 28th. Oh my goodness. Well, happy birthday. Gito. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I know a lot about uh, Saturn and, and uh, you know, the, the winter inside in that way of like Absolutely. deep reflection and commitment. What is one sort of last piece that you would ask for people that are wanting to do inquiry, inquiry work with their golden shadow? Is there a journal prompt or a question or a way, a way in that you have with yourself on those retreats? What are things you aspired to do, but you're either procrastinating on or fearful of? And it can be anything from, I really wanted to take a baking class to, I want to write a book to, I want to start, um, I'm going to put myself on every dating app up like available because I really want a partner to anything. Right. And you start there, but again, it's the honesty piece. It's like, really be honest with yourself. Like, yeah, I want to go to grad school and become a therapist, but the idea of that terrifies me because what happens to us, we get, we go into the terror and then we start listing all the things that justify the terror and that's it. That process is done. Right. So I start there. So you list those things and then you take, you can take one and be like, okay, what is, I want to go to grad school. Okay. If I don't sink into the terror, what's the next first step? Okay. I search, I research schools. Great. I do that. What's the next first step after where well, I look into loans. Okay, great. I do that slowly. And the idea is not just to gather information. The idea is that you use that as a mirror to your developing relationship with it, is to work with the fear. Oh, look, I was terrified, but I actually did four steps already into this thing. Okay, maybe not as scary as I thought it would be, right? So I change, I change my relationship. And then at some point, and this is where we can, yeah, again, I'm curious what you're gonna think. We move from safety to risk. At some point you take a risk. You can only build safety with something for as long. And then at some point you have to, you, it's just going to be a risk. So you'd be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to sign up for that stand-up course because I really want to work on being spontaneous and owning my voice in front of people. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to sweat the hell out of myself from nerves. And I'm going to look at people. I'm going to think everybody's going to like shame me or, and I'm going to do it. But I do it through that ongoing process of reflection, of taking that one next, next step. I appreciate this so much because you're basically having people identify where their breaks are, the breaks of procrastination and fear, and looking at those pieces that we get so down on ourselves for, being stuck in fear or procrastination, and actually looking at them as signposts that were mm. in the right place. Absolutely. And there are, in, and they become, even if you don't do the thing, which it feels important to, even if you don't end up doing the thing, just by having the engagement, you can learn a lot. Amazing. Right. You know, thank you so much for coming onto the current mm. today. Thank you for having me, Nadia. We had a beautiful wintering conversation being a December 28th baby. <laughs> I think it was perfect. And this end of year retreat that you talk about, which is also a solar return retreat. Um, I think that a lot of people will feel very inspired by that. And also the opportunity to really winter well 
feels really, really beautiful as we turn our attention to 2024. I, I, I can only say amen to that. I hope that will be of service to people in that way. And thank you so much for having me and creating a space for these kind of conversations and this kind of topics. It feels really important. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ida. Thank you, Nadia.